Chapter Forty of Gunman's Reckoning by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The day passed and the night, but how very slowly for Nelly Lebrun! She went up to her room early, for she could no longer bear the meaning glances which Joe Rix cast at her from time to time. But once in her room, it was still harder to bear the suspense as she waited for the noise to die away in the house. Midnight, and a half hour more went by, and then at last the murmurs and the laughter stopped. She alone was wakeful in Lebron's, and when that time came, she caught a scarf around her hair and her shoulders, made of a flimsy material which would veil her face but through which she could see, and ventured out of her room and down the hall. There was no particular need for such caution, however. It seemed. Nothing stirred, and presently she was outside the house and hurrying behind the houses and up the hill. Still she met nothing. If the corner lived tonight, its life was confined to Milligan's and the gambling house. She found Donnegan's shack and the one next to it, which the terrible colonel occupied, entirely dark, but only a moment after she tapped at the door it was opened. Donnegan, fully dressed, stood in the entrance, outlined blackly by the light which came faintly from the hooded lantern hanging on the wall. Was he sitting up all night, unable to sleep, because he waited breathlessly for that false tryst on the morrow? A great tenderness came over the heart of Nellie Lebron. "'It is I,' she whispered. There was a soft exclamation, then she was drawn into the room. "'Is there anyone here?' Only Big George, but he's in the kitchen, and he won't hear. He never hears anything except what's meant for his ears. Take this chair. He was putting a blanket over the rough wood to make it more comfortable, and she submitted dumbly to his ministrations. It seemed terrible and strange to her that one so gentle should be the object of so much hate, such deadly hate as the members of Nick's gang felt for him. And now that he was sitting before her, she could see that he indeed had been wakeful for a long time. His face was grimly wasted. The lips were compressed as one who has endured long pain, and his eyes gleamed at her out of a profound shadow. He remained in the gloom. The light from the lantern fell brightly upon his hands, alone, meager, fleshless hands, which seemed to represent hardly more strength than that of a child. Truly this man was all a creature of spirit and nerve. Therein lay his strength, as also his weakness. And again the cherishing instinct grew strong and swept over her. "'There is no one near,' he said, except the colonel and his daughter. They are up the hillside somewhere. Did you see them?' "'No. What in the world are they out for at this time of night?' because the colonel only wakes up when the sun goes down, and now he's out there humming to himself and never speaking a word to the girl. But they won't be far away. They'll stay close to see that no one comes near the cabin to get at Landis. He added, They must have seen you come into my cabin. And his lips set even harder than before. Was it fear because of her? They may have seen me enter, but they won't know who it was. You have the note from me? Yes. 
It's a lie. It's a ruse. I was forced to write it to save you. For they're planning to murder you. Oh, my dear. Hush, hush. Murder? I've been nearly hysterical all day and all night. But thank heaven, I'm here to warn you in time. You mustn't go. You mustn't go. Who is it? He had drawn his chair closer. He had taken her hands, and she noted that his own were icy cold, but steady as a rock. Their pressure soothed her infinitely. Joe Ricks, the peddler, Harry Masters. They'll be at the shack at ten o'clock, but not I. Murder? But a very clumsy scheme. Three men leave town and commit a murder, and then expect to go undetected, not even in the mountain desert. But you don't understand. You don't understand. They're wise as foxes. They'll take no risk. They don't even leave town together or travel by the same routes. Harry Masters starts first. He rides out at eight o'clock in the morning and takes the north trail. He rides down the gulch and winds out of it and strikes for the shack at the ford. At half past eight, the peddler starts. He goes past Sandy's place and then over the trail through the marsh. You know it? Yes. Last of all, Joe Rick starts at nine o'clock, half an hour between them. How does he go to the shack? By the south trail, he takes the ridge of the hills. But they'll all be at the shack long before you, and they'll shoot you down from a distance as you come up to it. Plain murder. But even for cowardly murder, they daren't face you except three to one. He was thoughtful. Suppose they were to be met on the way. You're mad to think of it. But if they fail this time, they'll try again. They must be taught a lesson. Three men, oh, my dear, my dear, promise. Very well. I shall do nothing rash, and I shall never forget that you've come to tell me this and been in peril, Nell, for if they found you had come to me, the peddler would cut my throat. I know him. Ah, but now you must go. I'll take you down the hill, dear. No, no, it's much easier to get back alone. My face will be covered. But there's no way you could be disguised. You have a way of walking. Good night, and God bless you. She was in his arms, straining him to her, and then she slipped out the door. And sure enough, there was the colonel in his chair, not fifty feet away, with a girl pushing him. The moonlight was too dim for Nelly Lebron to make out the face of Lou Macon, but even the light which escaped through the filter of clouds was enough to set her golden hair glowing. The color was not apparent, but its luster was soft silver in the night. There was a murmur of the colonel's voice as Nelly came out of the cabin, and then, from the girl, a low cry. It brought the blood to the cheeks of Nelly as she hurried down the hill, for she recognized the pain that was in it, and it occurred to her that if the girl was in love with Jack Landis, she was strangely interested in Donnegan also. A thought came so sharply home to her that she paused abruptly on the way down the hill. After all, this Macon girl would be a very strange sort if she were not impressed by the little red-headed man with his gentle voice and his fiery ways and his easy way of making himself a brilliant spectacle whenever he appeared in public. And Nellie remembered also, with a keen suspicion of a woman in love, how weakly Donnegan had responded to her embrace this night, 
How absent-mindedly his arms had held her, and how numbly they had fallen away when she turned at the door. But she shook her head and made the suspicion shudder its way out of her. Lou Macon, she decided, was just the sort of girl who would think Jack Landis an ideal. Besides, she had never had an opportunity to see Donnegan in his full glory at Milligan's. And as for Donnegan, he was wearied out, his nerves relaxed, and for the deeds with which he had startled the corner and won her own heart, he was now paying the penalty in the shape of ruined nerves. Pity again swelled in her heart, and a consuming hatred for the three murderers who lived in her father's house. And when she reached her room again, her heart was filled with a singing happiness and a glorious knowledge that she had saved the man she loved. And Donnegan himself? He had seen Lou and her father. He had heard that low cry of pain, and now he sat, bowed again over his table, his face in his hands, and a raging devil in his heart. End of chapter 40